Hi, everyone. This is Whitney Jennings, and you're listening to Minds Worth Meeting, a podcast by Stern Strategy Group. The business landscape is hyper-competitive, and thanks to technology, is changing at breakneck speed. Executives, directors, and managers are all looking to develop and implement the next innovative idea to differentiate their brand, drive growth, and build awareness for their companies. The problem is, they don't always know where to look or what strategic advice to follow. As a leading speakers bureau and communications agency, Stern Strategy Group has a direct plug to the world-renowned thought leaders, executives, and practitioners actively transforming the future of business across industries, disciplines, and the globe. Each season, our network of experts demystifies the rapid changes occurring in technology, marketing, strategy, healthcare, education, and much, much more. Whether you're looking for ways to improve your business model, reach new consumers, fine-tune your operations, or just make sense of artificial intelligence, you'll be privy to the insider knowledge shared in each episode. Amazingly, many of the lessons are just as applicable to your personal life as they are to your business. This is episode 21 of Minds Worth Meeting. And today, you'll meet Afosa Ojomo, champion for creating economic prosperity and expert on disruptive innovation. 120 years ago, America did not have the transportation infrastructure to support millions of Americans owning and buying cars. But after Ford was able to create the market and after other car manufacturers came in, many of these things were pulled into the economy. We began to develop the transportation infrastructure, road networks, the traffic laws and regulations. And so what we found is oftentimes when you create a new market, it really serves as an engine not just of economic growth, but an engine that helps pull in many of these other things into the economy that the economy doesn't have before the market is created. Afosa is an author, researcher, and speaker. He's a senior research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, where he leads the global prosperity research. For years, he's worked alongside Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen in figuring out the best ways to help entrepreneurs, policymakers, and development practitioners spur economic prosperity in their regions. He graduated from Vanderbilt University with a degree in computer engineering and earned an MBA from the Harvard Business School. So his expertise is that perfect mix of tech and business. Ifosa has formulated a new theory of economic development, and at the heart of this new perspective is the transformative power of market-creating innovations, which we'll talk about today. Ultimately, he'll show us that by understanding the many jobs that arise in consumers' lives, entrepreneurs and organizations can better develop innovations that consumers can hire to help them accomplish these jobs. These innovations generate new markets where none previously existed. They have the potential to uplift entire populations in the form of new jobs, external investment, and individual empowerment. The possibilities are endless. So stay tuned. I know you have colleagues, friends, or family who are interested in learning about the latest research and trends that will help them grow their 21st century companies. So please give them the gift of a competitive edge by sharing Minds Worth Meeting with them so they can download and subscribe as well. Do them a favor by giving them a chance to wow their friends with cutting edge ideas. And with that, we'll get into our episode with Efosa Ojomo.
Afosa, thanks so much for joining us on Minds Worth Meeting. We're, we're very excited to have a chat with you today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So the prosperity paradox has been receiving some major publicity. It's an important piece of work for 2019 and beyond. Why is your book with Clayton Christensen and Karen Dillon called The Prosperity Paradox? The Prosperity Paradox helps to explain a really interesting concept in the world of economic development, poverty alleviation, and creating prosperity. And it's, it's simple. It's the idea that um, you, you actually don't get to fixing poverty by trying to fix poverty. It's instead, um, you get to fixing poverty by focusing on something entirely different, which is on creating prosperity. And it turns out the more you try to fix poverty, the more your interventions create a dependency model and don't actually help you solve the problem. So that, that in itself sort of puts you in a situation where um, you're really trying hard to fix a problem, um, but it's by the mere focus on the problem, in this case it's poverty, um, that you're unable to actually fix the problem. And so that's why we named the book The Prosperity Paradox. Now, we want to change the conversation to focus more on prosperity as opposed to um, simply trying to fix poverty. So flipping the script a bit on, on what the focus has been for, for nations giving aid is essentially what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's very, very important. Uh, a very simple um, illustration I, I, I use a lot of times is... Um, you know, for people who have kids and their kids are taking a particular class, um, they don't just wish for the kids to not fail the class. Um, you, you focus on trying to get the kid to, to get an A or at least the best result possible. And you see, when we focus on programs that try to alleviate poverty or fix poverty, it's like focusing on um, trying for a country to not get an F um, in a particular situation. Focusing on prosperity is entirely different. That's let's try to get you uh, to get an A. Let's try to get you to the best solution possible. Um, and in that process, you'll find that you will eradicate poverty. You will alleviate poverty, but you're not really focusing on that. In the book, you and your co-authors argue that prosperity comes from market creating innovations. Can you tell our audience? what market-creating innovations are? Yes. Um, I, I think the first thing is to take a step back and, and, and understand the word innovation is is very commonly used, um, but without a, uh, an understanding. Um, or in other words, as people use the word innovation, it just means different things to different people. And so what we've done in the book, in Chapter 2 specifically, is we've really try to define and categorize different types of innovations as they relate to economic development. And the three types, as we describe, are market-creating innovations, sustaining innovations, and efficiency innovations. And based on our research, market-creating innovations really serve as a solid foundation for economic development. These are innovations that help you transform complicated and expensive products into products that are simple and affordable. And as a result of doing that, 
the people in that economy, in that region, gain access um, to products that historically they've not had access to. By virtue of you creating a new market that targets people who historically have not been able to get access, what you do is you trigger robust economic development for the region, but you also, as an organization, um, gain access to a new market that you've created. Uh, you gain access to uh, an immense amount of um, investment return and success. Um, and so uh, an example that we give in the book is specific to uh, the mobile telco industry in Africa. Uh, about 20 years ago, an entrepreneur by the name of Mo Ibrahim uh, decided to go into several countries in Africa and said, I want to uh, create a market for cell phones um, to give people access to inexpensive mobile phones so they can make calls. All his colleagues thought he was crazy. They thought he has lost his mind. He had a cush, com comfortable job in London at the time. Um, and they just said, gave him all the reasons why this would not succeed. But instead of listening to the colleagues, he took a different approach. He focused on creating this new market in the poorest parts of the world because he saw an opportunity. Now, as a result of him successfully creating that market, making uh, mobile telephony uh, simple and affordable so that many more people in uh, Mali, in Niger, in Sudan, these are the African countries that he focused on, um, so that many more people could access this, this new product, he was able to create a new market that pulled in about five to six million customers. Um, he eventually, uh, in seven years, sold the company uh, for about $3.4 billion, right? And so when you create a new market, you not only trigger economic development, but you also um, create significant returns uh, for your organization and your investors. Sounds like a win-win situation. Absolutely, absolutely it is. And what's interesting about that is um, we found that the activities that Mo Ibrahim took in building that new market and the economic development it triggered um, are quite similar to, to, to activities that entrepreneurs such as Henry Ford, uh, entrepreneurs such as Isaac Singer, um, Akio Morita of Sony, uh, these guys, the, the, the activities that Mo Ibrahim uh, engaged in were similar to the activities that these entrepreneurs that are so revered uh, in the U.S., in Japan, engaged in as well. And so what that tells us is that um, there is not only is there immense opportunity in creating new markets and uh, developing vibrant organizations, but by virtue of doing that, you also engage in uh, what we call nation building. And that's important for long-term economic uh, prosperity in many countries. It seems like these market-creating innovations and these entrepreneurs, what they're creating has a ripple effect on the economy. Can you describe how the impact of creating a new market mm -hmm. 
how that affects the rest of the nation and the rest of the economy? What other opportunities arise? Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I, I spoke earlier about how Mo Ibrahim was able to create an organization and sell it for about $3.4 billion uh, after seven years. Well, what I didn't mention is that the market that Mo Ibrahim created has grown significantly today. And so if you look across the whole continent of Africa, what you'll find is the mobile telecommunications industry now supports roughly 4 million jobs on the continent, is worth an estimated 200 or so billion dollars in economic value that it provides to African economies and provides billions of dollars in tax revenues to African governments every year. And so when you think about that simple idea that Mo Ibrahim had to create a new market, the follow-on impact of him successfully creating that market, not just for him personally, but for this continent that everybody 20 years ago looked at and said was poor, there's no opportunity, there's no way this kind of investment could work, you begin to get an idea of the kind of impact that market-creating innovations can have. And a, a similar thing happened with Henry Ford. The auto industry um, 120 years ago in the U.S. was something that was only available to the extremely wealthy people. Our cars were custom-made. And they weren't things that the average uh, American had access to. But after Henry Ford decided to democratize access, make the car simple and affordable to most Americans, what you now have today is a country um, that not only has upwards of 250 million cars on the road, um, but you, you look at the things that that industry has triggered, the building of roads, the building of suburbs, uh, making agriculture distribution and um, transportation a lot more efficient. And so you begin to get an idea that once you create a new market that makes things simple and affordable and, and um, create access to many people who didn't have access, uh, the kinds of development that can occur are really really uh, tremendous. It's interesting to see that the same method that you're proposing to build developing nations was part of the foundation of our current economy and way of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was one of the things that was the most hopeful as we wrote this book is really beginning to see that every country has a story. Um, but if you look hard enough, you'd find a, a pattern that's quite similar. I mean, not identical because no two, you know, no two people are identical, much less countries. But you begin to see a, a pattern that, that's similar. And this pattern of market creating innovations, if we can figure out how to get more investment dollars to flow to many regions in the world where there are no markets, and then create new markets in ways that Mo Ibrahim did, in ways that Henry Ford did, uh, the economic development impact is going to be tremendous, in addition to, you know, the returns that the uh, the investors make. Mm -hmm. 
So the way you describe it and the way it's, it's laid out in the book, market creating innovations sounds like a no-brainer for a business to say, okay, let's do this. But that's not the case. So what, what are the barriers? Why aren't companies jumping on this and, and, and how can they? There, there are certainly barriers. You're, you're very correct that, um, you know, we describe it as a no-brainer. And that's one of the things about market creating innovations. After the market is created, it's almost impossible to imagine life without it. That's the thing about these. But before it's created, everybody says there's no way this can happen. Uh, but the reason they say there's no way this can happen, it's quite legitimate reasons. For one, uh, that that often is a lack of infrastructure uh, in a region. Um, the institutions and laws are not quite set up to support the creation of the new markets. And corruption uh, often plays a, a big role, especially as you think about impoverished countries today. Now, one of the things that we try to do in the book is address these barriers head on. Uh, and we explain the relationship between these barriers with market creating innovations. And, and, and what we found was interesting. Uh, again, no two countries are identical and no two people are identical, but there's similarities. And what we found is that if you take 20 years ago, many countries in Africa, they did not have the institutional capacity, the technical expertise, and the infrastructure to on the ground that was uh, going to suggest that uh, a vast mobile telecommunications market would be uh, profitable and would be possible, much less profitable. They didn't have these things. Um, but if you look at where they are today, after the creation of the new market, these things were pulled into the economy. The institutions uh, and laws that regulated the telco industry were pulled into the economy. The infrastructures that helped sustain that market were pulled into the economy. Similarly, again, sticking with these two simple examples, 120 years ago, America did not have the transportation infrastructure to support millions of Americans owning and buying cars. But after Ford was able to create the market and after other car manufacturers came in, many of these things were pulled into the economy. We began to develop the transportation infrastructure, uh, the road networks, the traffic laws and regulations. And so what we found is oftentimes when you create a new market, it really serves as an engine not just of economic growth, but an engine that helps pull in many of these other things into the economy that the economy doesn't have before the market is created. And so you're right in that it's difficult to create a new market, but you know, we, we believe that is exactly why there's a lot of opportunity when you are successful in creating a new market. And by virtue of you creating that market, you then pull in many of the things that economies need to thrive into the market. So one of the ways that you describe how a company can create a new market is by targeting non-consumption. Can you help us understand what targeting non-consumption really looks like? Yes. Yeah, so in, in Chapter 3 of the book, we, we describe 
uh, how there is a lot of opportunity in what we call struggle. And so the way we look at an economy is a bit different. Um, we look at an economy as really divided into consumption and non-consumption. So the consumption part of the economy are it is the part where many people in the economy have access. So these are people who have access to transportation, food, education, um, luxuries and leisures. Uh, they, they essentially have access to most things because they can afford it. And when you look at market research, market research typically focuses on the consumption economy. They tell you about how many people are drinking a particular type of soda? How many people are purchasing different types of phones and laptops and cars? And so they focus on the consumption economy and organizations covet market research data that tells them how big a market is for a product, right? Well, it turns out that there's another part of the economy called the non-consumption part of the economy. And these are the people who are not consuming many of these products. Market research typically does not chase after them. Well, they're not consuming it, not because they don't have a need for it, but simply because there's no product or service available on the market that they can either afford or they can operate based on the skills that they have and the technical requirements uh, necessary to operate the products. And so these people are experiencing barriers to consumption. Now, when you want to create a new market, we recommend you target your new market creation activities on these people and the barriers that they have to consuming. And what you find is when you do that, organizations create new business models that are focused on these individuals. So a simple example, real quick, is uh, M-Pesa, which is a mobile money platform that originated out of Kenya. Uh, when you look at the banking system in Kenya and you know many many other uh, African countries or South Asian countries, uh, there's not a lot of access uh, to financial services. People don't have bank accounts, don't have savings, don't have uh, checking accounts. Well, instead of following the conventional brick and mortar approach, uh, which created a lot of barrier to access for people in these countries, um, what Safaricom, which is a company that created M-Pesa did was say, everybody has a mobile phone. Let's figure out how to change the business model to give people access to financial services based on information we have on their phones. And so you get the advent of mobile money. And now all of a sudden to transfer money from me to you, all I need is my phone. So fundamentally different business model. It changes the game. It creates access. And today, uh, roughly 50 or so percent of the economy in Kenya flows through uh, the M-Pesa the platform, right? That's billions of dollars in transactions month flowing through that platform. And so you can kind of see the impact this can have when you focus on non-consumption. So tell us about Tolerum Noodle Company and their story in your native Nigeria. Uh, I thought this this was such an interesting 
business and the impact that they had beyond the business. Give us give us a quick synopsis of, of how they address non-consumption and, and made it a viable business. Yeah, so I grew up in Nigeria and I grew up eating noodles and noodles uh, are not a staple food in Nigeria. Uh, 30 years ago, these two brothers decided that they wanted to introduce noodles to the Nigerian market. Now, you have to understand, 30 years ago, Nigeria was under a military regime. It's a very poor country, uh, much poorer than it is today. Uh, and the prospect for robust economic development were really, really uh, low. Well, these guys looked at the country and saw a lot of non-consumption happening. They saw a lot of people who were pressed for time and didn't have uh, the ability to you know, create meals uh, that took a lot of time uh, as, as they did before, as urbanization was happening. So they said, let's introduce a food that people can cook in under two, three minutes. It's flavorful and, and it's filling. Uh, so they introduced noodles. When they introduced it, uh, most Nigerians actually thought noodles were worms. So, so you can imagine they, they had a lot of work to do with regards to convincing the, the population that they should give noodles a try. But they focused on creating this noodle market. They built manufacturing plants in the country. They provided their own electricity and water treatment. They built a logistics and distribution uh, network. Uh, they built uh, a packaging company to help box and package the noodles. Uh, they built uh, uh, several other or organizations that really helped them focus on targeting this non-consumption that focused on getting noodles to the average person in Nigeria. I mean, uh, built a retail uh, network. Um, and so what we find here is they filled in the gaps the economy had and were ultimately able to make noodles really simple and affordable so most people could now afford it. Sells for about 20 cents, uh, if that. Now, it has paid off handsomely. Uh, today, that company grosses upwards of about a billion dollars a year. Uh, they make uh, over four and a half billion packs of noodles uh, in Nigeria annually. They employ a little over 50,000 people, provide millions of dollars in tax revenues to the Nigerian government. And so you can begin to get an idea of the kind of impact that a simple pack of noodle, getting that to the average person, can have in an economy. If we replicated that, what they did with a pack of noodles, and just began to replicate that in other sectors in the economy, make electricity simple and affordable, make transportation simple and affordable, education, and many of these other things, then you'll begin to see uh, the kinds of economic prosperity that could be generated if we had this kind of focus. Would you say this is a case of an entrepreneur being courageous or just having good business sense or both? Um, it's, it's almost always a yes and both <laughs> and both. Um, you know, I think uh, it's, it's difficult 
to create a new market if you're not courageous, if you're not bold, uh, because you are literally creating the future. You're telling people to imagine a different kind of future. I mean, if we go back to 30 years ago when most Nigerians didn't eat noodles, and you're saying you want to create a market for something most people thought were worms, you, yeah. you have to be courageous. I mean, if you go back 120 years ago, when Henry Ford said, I want to make a car uh, available to the average American, when we didn't have the road network and infrastructure that could support that kind of thinking, then you, he had to be courageous and bold. And so that is definitely a prerequisite. Uh, it, it's important to have that. But the other thing that I think uh, you, you can have, uh, and it's fairly easy, is really this business acumen to understand that in order for me to be successful at creating this new market, I have to think about all the specific components in the value chain that I have to pull into the economy in order for this to be successful. I think entrepreneurs um, definitely have to be courageous and bold uh, when you want to create a new market. That's definitely a piece of the puzzle uh, because you're, you're, you're essentially creating a different future uh, than people are used to. Um, and so you're, you're saying there's no market for this right now. Uh, there seems to be no need for it, but I believe that if we develop a product that's simple and affordable, many of these people are going to purchase this and they're going to uh, pull it into their lives. And so if you think about Tolaram, 30 years ago, there were no people weren't eating noodles in Nigeria. Today, they're grossing over a billion dollars selling noodles uh, in the country. The ability for an entrepreneur to imagine a future that's different from what many others would Focusing squarely on making products simple and affordable for the average people is absolutely crucial uh, for this to for this to work. We're we're excited to continue promoting the prosperity paradox and and hope to see it be implemented with entrepreneurs and organizations around the world. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Whitney. It's my pleasure. Very excited about the book. Uh, this was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Minds Worth Meeting. We absolutely appreciate your tuning in. I hope you found this conversation with Afoso Jomo thought-provoking and informative. You can find Afoso online on his personal website, afosoojomo.com, on Twitter at Afosoojomo, and you can also find him on LinkedIn. If you haven't yet subscribed to Minds Worth Meeting or left us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play, please do that right now if you enjoyed the episode. That way you'll be the first to know about new episodes. And if there are topics or industries that you're most interested in learning about that you haven't heard on the show or that you want to hear more of, send an email to mindsworthmeeting at sternstrategy.com or leave us a comment on any of our social media pages. Let us know what interests you or what your company's challenges are. We want to hear everything. Follow us on Twitter at Stern Strategy and at Stern Speakers, and you'll find Stern Strategy Group on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening to Minds Worth Meeting. I'm your host, Whitney Jennings. Until next time.